today we, we actually finish up, uh, we were left hanging a little bit on our chapter six and seven last week. We were talking about these really violent, horrific seals that were opening up in chapter six, and then seven takes this long interlude, and we're wondering what in the world is going on. And then right at the beginning of eight, we get our resolution. So we kind of have uh, a short reading today, so I'm just going to read it, and then uh, we'll uh, continue on uh, in our study. This is from Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Then when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar and he held a gold bowl for burning incense. He was given a large amount of incense in order to offer it on behalf of the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense offered for the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the incense container and filled it with fire from the altar. He threw it down to earth, and there were thunder, voices, lightning, and an earthquake. This is God's word for God's people. So I wonder in a room like this, who, raise your hand if you know what a run-out groove is. Does anyone know what a run-out, you have no context for that question, which is great. Yeah, I think you know what this is. On a vinyl record, a run-out groove is that kind of empty space close to the middle of the donut hole there, and when the needle hits it, it signifies that it's time to flip sides, right? Um, also, kind of run-out run grooves are really famous because on things like Beatles records, uh, sometimes they play weird sounds that get interpreted to say, like, Paul's dead if you play it backwards and things. And also, people etch weird, kind of cryptic uh, comments or things in the run-out groove. That's a Led Zeppelin record with, I think it's just who mastered the record etched into the run-out groove. So it doesn't really make any sound, but it's a signal that it's time to turn over for more songs. That's a little bit um, what is kind of, I think, happening here with that long interlude. And then we're all hyped up to see what this seventh ultimate seal, remember when we see seven, it means a complete number, a wholeness, kind of the ultimate. And what we get is silence. Silence in the heavenly throne room. We're, we're all hyped up, kind of like the psalm that we sang together, Psalm 46 of all this destructive language, and then it gives way to be still and know that I am God. And so it feels a little bit like we're at the run-out groove of Revelation. It's not the exact numerical center, but it feels like kind of the center where we've had all these songs and we'll have more songs, but we take a pause and we have some silence. In some ways, silence can lead to fear or paralysis, but also silence can generate new songs. It can be kind of a womb for songs of solidarity and hope. Uh, just in the West End, our patron saint of the West End, Polly Murray, says, hope is a song in a weary throat. Most of us, if you have a weary throat, singing is the last thing you want to do, but hope says sing anyways. And sing, 
even though perhaps it's a bit unconfident or off-key or out of time, and I won't name any names in here, but when you sing that way, you, you come forth with a song nonetheless. And the run-out groove is kind of the signal for this. After these seven seals of God's wrath that have broken open and all of the horsemen come running out and there's all of these, uh, all of these judgments for God to help to remake the world, after all of that, after the silence, there's more singing. And there's a whole other side of songs and these are songs of salvation and hope and also more judgment. And each of these songs, in their own way, all of the songs in Revelation serve the purpose of, of reorienting us to the Lamb. Uh, if that's possible, they, they help us to remember into the future. We're used to remembering into the past, but we're reading these songs into the future. And it'll be a wild thing when we show up and we already know these songs that we've never actually heard before, right? But they also serve to, to remember us, to like remake us into members of Christ's body, these songs, because songs are best sung together. One of my uh, favorite movie scenes featuring one of these really fragile but hopeful songs um, comes from the Shawshank Redemption. And do you all remember that scene where Tim Robbins' character, and right now I can only think of uh, Tim Robbins' Bull Durham character because it was on TV last night. But in Shawshank Redemption, he's Andy Dufresne and he's in prison and he basks in this fleeting presence of the, this record player's hopeful duet and it's from the marriage of Figaro and amidst all of the hopelessness and isolation and monotony in his prison camp life, this song comes through the PA. And uh, Morgan Freeman's great voice says... Those two Italian ladies were saying something too beautiful that can't be expressed in words. They were saying words. It was just Italian, right? Uh, and it says, it makes your heart ache because of it. I love that so much. Like uh, music's ability, songs' ability to, to deeply uh, both express but kind of get at what you're feeling and what you hope for at a, at a really guttural place. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer also understood the value of this sort of music. And he also was in a prison camp and he was writing about music in a prison camp and had this really vibrant inner musical life despite kind of silence. He didn't have access to record players. Uh, he was in this Flossenburg death camp until his death at the end of World War II. And he, he wrote in a letter, the music that we hear inwardly can almost surpass if we really concentrate on it enough what we hear physically. And then he goes to write to his his um, former student and best friend, Ebergard Bethke. Um, and he, he writes in musical terms, but in a really like theological way. you think this theologian would write using like systematic theology terms, but he talks like music. Uh, he, he says, I, I want to tell you to have a, a good clear cantus firmus. That's like kind of the bottom end uh, baseline sort of steady movement of a song. That way, that's the way to a full and perfect sound when the counterpoint, all these things springing off, can't come adrift or get out of tune. It remains a distinct whole in its own right. He goes, only a polyphony, and he's experiencing this, this fragmentation, this polyphony, all, all of these different thoughts and feelings as he's, as he's in this camp and his, his homeland is coming crashing down around him. He says, 
only a polyphony of this kind can give life a wholeness and at the same time assure us that nothing calamitous can happen as long as the cantus firmus is kept going. He wants to remind his friend, and I think he wants to remind all of us, that's something we all need to be reminded of, of, that the love of God is this steady backbeat that we have to keep coming back to in all of our other loves, all of our other experiences. And, and if we do that, even pain, even joy, like all these polarities and things that feel like they're, they're, they can't occupy the same space, even, even all of those can, can make sense and be held together and a polyphony can exist and a polyphony can even contribute to flourishing and fullness as long as there's this cantus firmus, God's presence, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace that holds us all together. Maybe you've never considered your own spirituality and your life of discipleship in musical terms like this. Maybe this just like wouldn't occur to you, right? I think Revelation, the book of Revelation, gives us a chance and a reason to kind of creatively consider music and how we worship. Uh, but also ways that we are and aren't oriented to Jesus. What we consider worthy of our songs. The songs that come out of our mouths and the songs that we allow to come into our ears. Uh, after all, worthy is, is, a, um, is a worship word. Like they're etym etymologically related. Like the uh, worship means worthy. Like it's worth-ship, right? And so our song uh, really shows, really uh, gives, a, gives a clue of what we value. This has really profound implications of our life with God. It, it has implications of like our private spiritual life and our piety, but also like really deep political ramifications too. The book of Revelation, as we've seen, as we've studied together, is really wide-eyed about how there's always kind of this worship vacuum in our lives that other people and other things are always vying for our attention and our affection and the things that we should only give God and that we should only give others through God. There's always and there always has been, always will be, uh, until Jesus sets up his throne in full, like these phonies trying to grab onto that throne in our hearts and in our world. This is why singing is so important in Revelation. In many ways, you, you are what you sing, and I think Revelation knows that really well. That's why there's so many songs. Some scholars say that there's 15 songs in Revelation. Think about how just what sort of music you like defines you, right? Like, music styles that we listen to, they're not just genres, but they're actually like whole subcultures. Like, if you listen to country music, or hip-hop music, or indie rock music, or punk rock music, or contemporary Christian music, if I, if I describe someone by what sort of music they listen to, you already kind of think you know a little bit about what that person is like, probably how they dress, probably where they hang out, some of these other things, right? Think how important music is to our everyday lives. So here's, here's maybe a little like challenge or exercise for you. So if you were going on a uh, on some sort of dieting journey, um, you would probably first want to reveal to yourself the kind of junk that you're putting into your body and the quantities of that. And so they have these things called diet journals, right, where, where you write down what you're eating, when, how much you exercise, all those things. Try to do that with your music. Like, what if we did that 
like prayerfully each week that you evaluated every song that you sang or listened to each week before you came to worship to sing on Sunday because we, we come here and we sing together. That's a big part of what we do. Like, uh, evaluate, like, what is, not just, like, if they have cuss words or not, but, like, what is going on in these songs? And what are, what are we hoping is going on in these songs? I laughed uh, during the NBA Finals. There was this meme of Kawhi Leonard, who is kind of a strange character, but he's the superstar of the Toronto Raptors. And he had headphones on, and people were saying, I wonder what Kawhi Leonard is listening to. And some people said probably like the instruction manual for that headphones or like white noise or whatever, because he's super boring, right? And so again, our music matters for who we are and who we want to be. I'm, I'm not suggesting that your diet only consists of a certain type of music or even a certain type of Christian music, but dig deeper and see how music both forms and aims your heart and how you, the music that you like is kind of the product of your formation. How does your music guide what you're hoping for? What is possible? Who are you singing with and what are your allegiances Two, what subculture are you trying to belong to or what subculture are you like either co consciously or unconsciously like trying not to belong to by not listening to it? Like expand, limit, alter, interrogate as necessary and then come here and sing together to the Lord. Even this process of examination can be an exercise of spiritual formation. And having the Spirit, like, kind of to put a little paraphrase, transform us by the renewing of our ears, right? That would be pretty cool if that happened. And then the 200 level of this, of this little experiment project, when you listen to songs, try to listen to the songs that the, whoever was making the songs listened to. Like, um, that'll help you maybe be a, a little more attentive when you're reading your Bibles and, and something rings, like you feel like it's familiar and you know it, and then you go back. And so when you're reading Revelation, you're also reading Isaiah or you're also reading Psalm 96 or you're going back to influences and echoes in the songs behind the songs and the interpolations and the covers and the context. Uh, it'll make you a really, uh, a lot more of a discerning listener. So Revelation songs are deep statements about who's in charge and what really matters. Consider, and we're backtracking. Remember, we're standing in the middle here, backtracking to chapter 4, and consider this chapter 4 song about power. I think, I think this Revelation 4 song is about power. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This wipes out worship of anything less than the Lamb. The three holies, Father, Son, and Spirit, who was here before it all started, who's here in the midst of it all, and who will be here when all is said and done. This is a song that does away with the trivial. Like, why are you listening to lesser songs than this? Why are you singing lesser songs than this? Sing that. And sing that reality. Reorient to that. And then the song goes on, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have your being. The Lord is powerful, remember this is a power song, precisely because the Lord created it all. Power from God creativity. Power from the sort of grace 
that generates life in abundance. Most world religions have these origin stories, creation stories that come out of force and power and conflict, but our creation story comes out of grace and overflow. The very life of love and community pouring out into all creation. God is worthy. God is powerful because God created. What other visions and ideas about power do our songs suggest that compete or pale in comparison to God's creative power? That's maybe a question to ask. Or look at this message from um, chapter 5. Remember, this is the throne room scene. This is a song about wisdom. You are worthy. Again, that word worthy. These are worship songs. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Two things that really especially stick out. One, this is quote-unquote world music that's happening here. To sing Revelation songs is to be disabused of the notion that the kingdom of God is primarily based out of like the white western world of your comfort zone or that you kind of get to periodically roam the radio dial or the Spotify playlist to like pick up something a little more exotic. This is exotic. You are the oddball here. This powerful song includes all people purchased from every tribe, language, and tongue. And that notion is radically decentered from you and I. This is like, in, if it was a grocery store, this would not be Food Lion or Harris Teeter where you have like one or two ethnic aisles. This is like a worldwide farmer's market hosted by the lamb, right? And for all the tales of Christianity in decline these days, the true story is that Christ church is really alive and well in most of the world that's not here, right? And Revelation kind of tips, tips its hand on this. Uh, in the global south, there's growing vibrancy and strength in the church in places where being a Christian is not normal and not particularly acceptable. In places where assembling under the name of Jesus is not necessarily legal and is costly and dangerous. If the Enlightenment map of the Christian world centers on Rome or Canterbury or the Bible Belt of the United States, coming census data will do some pretty different maps, right? And it's from this emerging center that they sing with the multitude from Revelation 5, worthy is the song, worthy is the lamb. The other thing that sticks out from this song is the reason that the lamb is worthy. Remember the first song, the reason that, that um, God has power is because God created. The reason that the lamb is worthy is, it says, quote, because you were slain. Precisely because of Jesus' suffering, Jesus is in charge. Strange. <laughs> so often, when we're struggling or suffering, even in small ways, we assume that we're doing something wrong or that we're stricken because things are hard, because it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. We've really inherited ideas about this for ourselves, but also for others. 
And when we look at people who are poor or those with mental health issues or those whose lives are messy or disordered, their relationships are a disaster, we often first think that they've messed up and they just need to get it together. It's actually quite a bit more complicated than that. Sin does real damage to real people, to all of creation, and maybe especially humanity, and we, we join in on that fun, right? But sin also enslaves us to ways we don't even know and ways we can't feel or necessarily describe. But Christ, the slaughtered lamb, shows us a new way, a really different way, a way that unravels death by means of death. And this song sings of the reality that Jesus is worthy and Jesus is wise because he was slain. That suffering and sacrifice doesn't alienate us from God. It actually buys us back from sin and death. Buys everything back that was lost from Adam's disobedience and from our disobedience. Do you see some of the ramifications of this? There, there are radical implications to calling someone Lord who was from a rural place, who was a Jew, who was born to a teen mom, a teen mom with an adopted stepdad, who was a refugee, who was a convicted criminal, who was at times a blue-collar worker, but also sometimes apparently homeless, and whose friends abandoned him and betrayed him, and who is often at odds with the gatekeepers. These are all descriptive of Jesus. This means that Jesus, in all his smallness, in all his insignificance, in all his humiliation, in all his enigmatic teaching, in all his public suffering and shame, even in his death and especially in his resurrection, is worthy to open up the scroll and to teach us about how to live. You can say amen if you want, right? This presses us to admit something that maybe we've never really come to grips with, especially in this place that's really highly academic and being smart is really valued that the slaughtered lamb, Jesus, is actually kind of smart. Dallas Willard gets at this very point. Uh, this is in Divine Conspiracy. He says, saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate in saying that Jesus is smart. He's not just nice. He's brilliant. He's the smartest man who ever lived, and he is now supervising the entire cosmos of human history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He's al he always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in human life. Sure, this wisdom looks like foolishness. Paul calls this the foolishness of the cross, right? It seems totally absurd but it is totally wise. The merits of like, this way of going about your everyday business might not really like, win you immediate approval of your colleagues or your supervisor or your neighbors, but Jesus wrote the book on the way things have always been, currently are, and will be when God makes all things new. The song says, Jesus is worthy because Jesus is wise because Jesus suffered and dies for the sins of the whole world. The last hymn that we'll cover today, and there's more, so you should go and check these out for yourselves, um, is from chapter 11 in Revelation. It's a song, I think, mostly about protest and praise. It says, 
We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is and was, uh, for you have taken your great power and enforced your rule. The nations were enraged, but your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged. The time came to reward your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So after the run-out groove of chapter 8 comes side B. And the song we hear comes from the 24 elders. Remember, it's 12 tribes of Israel plus 12 disciples. All of God's people represented there. And this song is a sad song. It's one geared, though, towards hope and God's justice and renewing wrath. We might know this as kind of a, a protest song, keenly aware of what's not right in the world and putting to music that outrage and that positive vision instead of just anger or despair. The protest song of Revelation is the key that the lamb, like sings in the key of the lamb and hopes in God's future judgment and current sovereignty. When you sing protest songs, you hope that something is gonna be different, but you also hope that someone is actually in charge of this mess. These songs hold on to hope and stubborn conviction that God is worthy because God is in charge even now. God has begun to reward and, and even punish appropriately, even though the world seems bent towards injustice and unrighteousness. It seems crazy in the grand scheme of things to sing when you're faced with such suffering and injustice and fear. But have you ever noticed how built into our lives it is to sing at exactly those times? Maybe this is an attempt to grab back on and join back in on that cantus firmus when the polyphony kind of takes over, when there's all these scattered and fractured sounds around us and we can't even hear anymore. We need to get quieter and listen back in. This joins in the legacy of the prophets and the psalmists who cry out, how long, Lord, how long? With a holy impatience, but with a trust in God's concern and God's expediency. Wake up, God. Why are you sleeping? It joins in with their prayers of imprecation, which sound harsh. They sound awful. They don't even sound like words that you should say in a church, but they're healthily sounded before God rather than taking these things into your own hands. Wouldn't you rather sing these things to someone who can actually do something rather than try to do something on your own? This prayer keeps showing up in another form throughout Revelation. Uh, we, we find it in song, but we also find it in incense. This is kind of a cool little wrinkle that uh, I never noticed reading Revelation until this last round. In chapter 5 that we already covered, the angels carry golden bowls of incense. And it says, which are the prayers of the saints? It's so great when they give you an interpretation of confusing things actually in the text, right? In our reading today, we also hear of an angel standing before the altar in front of the throne, pouring out prayers of the holy ones. And these wisps of smoke that seem so fleeting, such a dumb way to spend our time and money on incense, on prayers, they seem so insignificant, especially like in the midst of bodily hurt, like praying in the ICU. It's something we want to do, but it often feels so weak and so small. But these prayers, this holy smoke, actually fills the nostrils 
of God. It actually becomes part of God's own breath. And then it gets converted to God's action on earth. I think that's what that's all about when it says those bowls were thrown down on earth and there was thunder and lightning and earthquakes. That because of these prayers, something is happening down below. So keep singing and keep praying, even if you don't see the results of this, because all of these songs and prayers proclaim that God is worthy because God has begun to reign even now and is working his rule in our hearts and in this world. And this song later gets picked up in Revelation 15, that all nations will come and fall down and worship before you because your acts of justice have been revealed. They're not even yet to come. They're just being opened up for us. So I want to close with a short video. We don't do videos here a lot. But I, this video says about this sort of protest singing better than I could in a more contemporary setting. Our video was made by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We have a few IVCF folks in our midst. Thanks to Steph for um, telling me about this video. They put these videos together for their national conference a few years ago, and this one features Michelle Higgins in St. Louis speaking about protest singing with other Christians in Ferguson, Missouri. And there's other awesome videos, and we'll link to them. Thing, uh, video from Jordan and Tecate, Mexico, in the Pacific Islands, and there's loads of other songs that we could be talking about from the sing-song chants of No Están Solos, You're Not Alone, that are happening, volleying over the border right now. Um, we could be talking about the song that we're going to sing during communion that is an old Christian praise chorus from the 70s that I didn't actually know, but it's currently becoming this protest anthem in Hong Kong. You can go on BBC or CNN, Fox News, all these websites and, and read about how thousands of Hong Kong protesters are singing together, chanting, sing hallelujah to the Lord, which might not seem like the most obvious choice for like a, an activist anthem against Chinese extradition. But one Catholic protester explained it in an interview, and he says, the word alleluia means praise the Lord. So it could also remind Hong Kong citizens that God holds onto the future. So they're singing alleluia to the Lord in the streets. It's a revelation song. Indeed, God holds the future. And God is in control. God is worthy. So sing these songs of power and wisdom and protest and praise. You can enjoy the video. Mm -hmm. Hold on just a little while longer. Hold on. This city is in darkness. Our communities are in darkness, and it is only the people who are bold enough to enter into that darkness and to preach hope and to testify a hope. Everything's going to be all right, you know, that hope that pierces the darkness and reminds you the dawn is going to rise. Everything will be The reason I think it's important that 
I'm here with Michelle and seeing her life and she's graciously invited us into her home to meet her family, meet her husband, come to her church, is because the song and the music is in the context of her life and her work and who she is as a follower of Jesus. As we think about our wellness, as we think about our purpose, as we connect it to I, to me and what God has Activism isn't a thing that is just exciting all the time. Actually, the most exciting part is sitting people down and telling them you think you're enemies, but the goal is friendship. The goal of activism is not to defeat the person who is your enemy, but to defeat the force that is making you hate each other. When I pine away to hold my children at night, but I am out literally marching in ice cold winter, truly, I'm giving up something and it costs something, but oh, what I gain from looking into the eyes of people who would never expect to see someone who loves the Lord, also come out and say, the Lord loves justice. My father and I were pursued, targeted, threatened for eight months by a militant group of white supremacists who were dead set on killing us. And they told us this in so many ways, electronically. But at the same time, all of us knowing that if you are a member of the subdominant culture, you spend your life under the awareness that racist people want to kill you. And it is a fact that almost dominates your subconscious. Okay. That's like a, um, the way that that formation is so natural for a spiritual, because the second half of each line is the same. Mm. Hold on. So then me, as someone who's white and Korean American, my musical worship tradition doesn't reflect this calling out to God in the midst of suffering, this repeating truths until my soul rises up and agrees with them. That's not part of my tradition, but it's biblical and I need it. became a hub for the movement towards justice and specifically speaking out against police brutality and mistrust between civilians and police. And a lot of the old spirituals, the people who have always been accustomed to singing in the civil rights movement, all that, those spirituals were adapted for a new movement for justice. So Hold On is actually one of the spirituals that we've never changed the lyrics. It went from the slave cabin to the streets of Ferguson. The late, sad, weary nights that we experienced embodied those same weary nights when slaves who were aching for their freedom didn't think the sun would ever rise. 
And that's what the movement and Ferguson is. It is a lot of people experiencing a shared situation of trauma and deciding to hope beyond all of the brutality, beyond all of the media's misrepresentation. We stood in Ferguson, got shot up with tear gas and spat on and called animals as a group, but we chose to hold on because we know that everything will be all right. Back off, you will be arrested at this time. You do not go back behind the ride, you will be arrested at this time.